St. Thomas Aquinas spends a lot of time talking about virtue in his Summa Theologica, and also a lot of time talking about vice and sin. And one of the things that he talks about, which I think is very important, is the six sins against the Holy Spirit. So there's this reference in Scripture that Jesus makes uh, to the sins of the Holy Spirit being unforgivable. What does that mean? So Thomas spends uh, a bit of time on this, and he says basically the sins against the Holy Spirit are the sins that attack the things that bring us to conversion. And therefore they're unforgivable because they attack the forgiveness itself in a way. And as long as you're attacking the forgiveness, you cannot receive it. So, and he breaks these six sins down into three categories. And I won't go into all of them, but he says two of them, two of them are opposed to two good things about God that help bring us to repentance. And he says when we think about God, two things that should help bring us to repentance and and receive God's forgiveness are God's justice and his mercy. Thinking about God's justice brings us to repentance because We think about the fact that he is just and that we have sinned and that sin should be punished and God, knowing all things, knows all our sins, even even our secret sins. And so that should prompt us to shape up and repent and go to confession and change our lives. He says the other thing about God that should bring us to repentance is God's mercy. Because we know that when we try to repent and when we approach God for forgiveness and when we are sincerely sorry, that mercy will always be there. So there's, there's no chance with a perfectly merciful God that if we are sincerely sorry, he will sincerely not forgive us. There's no chance of that. So it should give us a confidence to always approach him. And against these two good things, God's justice and God's mercy, are two of the six sins against the Holy Spirit. They're the sins of presumption and of despair. Those are the two things that I want to talk about tonight because I think, uh, especially our first reading and our gospel reading, kind of counteract them in in, in a powerful and, and very beautiful way. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas says that presumption and despair are two sins opposed to one virtue, and the one virtue is hope. He says when we hope, what are we doing? We're We're desiring a good thing for ourselves that we don't have yet, and it's hard to get, but it's possible to obtain. And he says that there are really two objects of hope. He says one is getting to heaven. That's the ultimate good thing that we want from God. But he says there's a second part of hope. Knowing that heaven is so far away and the gap between us and God is so great, the second thing we hope for is God's help. So hope leads us to desire both heaven and the help we need in order to get to heaven. And against this hope, is presumption and despair. So let's talk a little bit about those. Basically, presumption, presumption, says St. Thomas Aquinas, is when a person seeks to obtain glory without merits or pardon 
without repentance. Glory without merits, pardon without repentance. And so it kills that useful fear of God's justice which can can help us repent, can help us to seek his mercy. And in one way, you know, I think our first reading might be, in some sense, a temptation to presumption. You know, for you love all things that are. You know, you overlook people's sins that they may repent. You loathe, you loathe nothing that you have made. For what you hated, you would not have fashioned. And how could a thing remain unless you willed it or be preserved had it not been called forth by you? And so the presumptuous thing to say in reading this passage is, ah, heaven, no problem. God loves me, I'll be fine. What could go wrong? That's the presumptuous way of, of reading the first reading. That's not the right way to read it, but we'll get to that later. I think the counterexample of, uh, to presumption is actually Zacchaeus in the gospel. Because when he, when he encounters the Lord and he encounters the Lord's mercy, you know, that, you know, this is a guy who's known to be a, a great public sinner, the chief tax collector. Tax collectors in ancient Israel um, are basically guilty of the twin sins of uh, thievery uh, and treason against Israel. So really bad, but held in very low esteem, and, and good people would not associate with them. And here comes Jesus and says, oh, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. And... Zacchaeus could be presumptuous and say, well, I guess being a tax collector, not that bad a gig. You know, come on, Jesus is coming over for dinner. How bad can I be? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He actually repents of his sins. He says, I'm going to give away half, half of my goods to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay them back four times. And actually what Zacchaeus is doing there, and you say, well, why four? Well, what he's doing is he's showing that action that he's actually embracing the old law, the Jewish law, because uh, the law said that if you, if you stole from somebody, you had to pay them back four times. And so he is now, having been shown mercy by God, he's going back and he's going to fulfill the law. And so he's not presumptuous. He recognizes that I need to change my life. This is a new opportunity. You know, people have shunned me for years. I have all this money, but nobody likes me. Jesus has come. This is my chance. I need, I need to get on it. And I need, I need to change. And he doesn't, he doesn't get, fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm probably not that bad a person. Jesus came for dinner last Tuesday. It'll be fine. And so part of what we're called to in a, part of you know, the job of the church is, is to call her children then to works of repentance. That's why Lent exists. You know, in, in the olden days, before Vatican II, you know, Lent was not um, just like giving up candy or something and fasting twice in 40 days. It was fasting for 40 days. Was, you know, so there's a lot, sense of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work of repenting we need to do. And so we need to, you know, grace is not, is not cheap. It's not cheap. It can't be easily acquired. We have to do something about it. And I think practically, it's, it's strictly speaking, it's, it's not presumption in its fullest sense, but it kind of leads there. There's something that I came, come across occasionally in talking to people, you know, particularly in confessions, they might say, oh, 
yeah, I did something bad and I felt bad about it and then I thought, well, might as well do it again. I mean, I have to go to confession anyway. So technically speaking, not presumption in the strict sense because there's a a recognition that I need to repent. But there is this sense that forgiveness is no big deal, that I don't need to change, or at least not right now. And so my my practical advice, if if you find yourself struggling with that, is still go back to confession. Don't let that keep you away from confession. But whatever penance the priest gives you in confession, do something extra. Do something extra to help tell yourself, yeah, no sin is a big deal. And when I sinned, I told myself, well, it's not a big deal. I'll just go back to confession. So do something else. Do something that says, no, it is a big deal. I'm going to do fasting for an extra day or take a cold shower or do an extra 20 minutes of prayer, whatever. You know. So that's, that's presumption, which is opposed to God's, to God's justice. And then there's despair. And St. Thomas says despair is even worse than presumption in opposing hope. It's more opposed to the, to the hope that Jesus gives us in the gospel. And again, if we look at our gospel here, there's, there's an interesting uh, temptation towards despair that I think is, is present here. Um, Jesus passes by and he says, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And he came down quickly and received him with joy. When they all saw this, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to stay at the house of a sinner. And Jesus knows they're saying this, and Zacchaeus knows they're saying this. And I think the temptation for Zacchaeus in this moment is to say, yeah, you know, they're right. Lord, no, just don't, don't come over. It's okay. I, you know, I'm, I'm beyond help. You know, just, it'll be fine. I, I'm not worthy. You know, and to, and to push away the one who had come to seek and save what was lost. And I think the indication that there's this temptation there is because if you look at Zacchaeus' response, it says, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, half of my possessions, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But he stood there, like he had to stand his ground in the face of this pushback that he was receiving, in, in, the, in the face of these voices that said, eh, you're not, you're not good enough to receive the Lord. Mm-mm, this shouldn't happen. There's something wrong with this. And in opposition to those voices, he stands his ground and he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my life. And he accepts God's forgiveness. And that's the right way to read the first reading. That when we hear God say in this book, um, you overlook people's sins that they may repent, for you love all things that are and loathe nothing that you have made. For what you hated, you would not have fashioned. And so if we find ourselves tempted by despair, thinking that, we're not good enough, that we are beyond God's grace, that things are so hopeless, that we couldn't possibly make it. I think the remedy is to once again to look at and to believe in faith this thing that seems unbelievable, that God could be merciful, even to me. And it requires believing something that that may not seem obvious or apparent at the time, 
but as G.K. Chesterton, famous British writer, famously, famously wrote, faith means believing the unbelievable. That's kind of part of the definition of it. And so there has to be this, this acceptance. And I think what makes it easier is where we put our focus and our emphasis. I don't often preach on the, on the psalm, but our psalm for today, the, the responsorial, uh, the, the refrain is, I will praise your name forever, my King and my God. I think that too is part of the remedy against despair. Focusing on God and his goodness, not on our sinfulness. Because focusing on God puts things in their right perspective. His wisdom says, before the Lord, the whole universe is, is, is as a grain from the balance or drop of morning dew, come down upon the earth. And if despair is telling us that our sins are too big, focusing on God makes us realize that, well, they may be too big for us, but they're not too big for God. They're not too bad that the cross cannot remedy them. And I think this despair is something actually that it comes up a lot today. You know, and in, I don't think I, I noticed it as uh, very much before I became a priest. Um, but since I became a priest, you know, and talking to lots of, of people, um, I've begun to notice just how prevalent despair is. And how often people who, you know, are presenting with things like you know, depression or anxiety or eating disorders or other things, um, that while dealing with those, there's something else that is at work. Another voice is present. You know, the voice that says, uh, you're worthless. You know, you'll never be better. Who could possibly love you? And I know whose voice that is. And it doesn't originate with the person who's hearing it. And it's the voice of, of despair. It's the voice of the devil who... I think quite instructively in, in Hebrew is called Satan or the accuser who accuses us before God day and night. And his voice is the one that I think sometimes we hear in the darkest moments. And his is the voice that must be rejected. But you spare all things because they are yours, O Lord and lover of souls. I think that sums up the Christian story. The Lord, the lover of souls, who loved them so much that he gave his only son to suffer and die for our sake. So I'm going to leave you with the words here of St. Paul in his reading in his letter to the Thessalonians. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and powerfully bring to fulfillment every good purpose and every effort of faith that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, in accord with the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.